Regenerating alter adds potential to reverse climate change because it can capture so much carbon above ground. We're planting twice the amount of trees in a parcel compared to common culture, but also below ground. A healthy soil captures so much more carbon than a depleted soil. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven, sustainable product brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, and today we're speaking with Antoine Ambert, Senior Director of Sustainability at Alter Eco, who recently launched the Alter Eco Foundation to further their work transforming the chocolate industry by converting monoculture farms to a regenerative agroforestry model. As I was diving into your um, LinkedIn, which I realized I hadn't like dug super deep into in a long time or maybe ever, I realized that you had started your journey with um, some business degrees, business training, before you dove into Alter Eco, where you started kind of as an assistant and then moved into director and then moved into sustainability. So first off, I'm curious to know what drew you to to the business education? And then from there, how did you kind of connect that dot into a company like Alter Eco? Yeah. So actually, before business school, where what I studied was uh, political studies and specifically uh, development economics. That's where I actually was taking a path to do a PhD in development economics because oh. that was my passion. I wanted to try to you know, solve the world problems and inequalities between countries and, and, you know, was 12, 14 years ago. And still today, but I feel, you know, emerging countries are, you know, facing humongous challenges with growth around, again, inequalities and making sure there is enough regulation so that wealth was redistributed within those countries. And of course, at the global scale between, again, Europe, the US, and then, you know, the rest of the world. And I felt that even though I was taking that research path, this actually was in 2008 during the crisis. And therefore, it was extremely difficult to find grants to actually uh, do a PhD because PhDs, you know, to find grants. It was all that was in Europe. So that may be a little different in the US, but I was supposed to find grants so that I could, again, be paid during the few years of the PhD. And even though the research topic at the time, I was really going to microfinance uh, with India and in Bangladesh. I went there for a little bit to study some women's group that were working with, I remember it was Buffalo Milk in the region of Hyderabad in India, uh, which was fascinating. And so there was a lot of interest for that research. But again, that didn't really work out in terms of finding the right financing to do the actual PhD. And so I decided to go to business school because, you know, this time business school is what gives you a job. And I was you know, fairly interested in, uh, in, in the business aspect. I also knew that even though I wanted, I also was a doer, right? I like to get things done and I like to, you know, finish projects that I start fairly in a timely manner, but a new one. PhD tends to be quite the opposite, right? You have one and only project, then you do that. Yeah. So I was a little, I had a lot of anxiety. And today, fast forward, I actually remember one second that this didn't work out. <laughs> I'm glad that the great thing didn't work out. So yeah, so what happened is that I went to business school. So again, after development economics, so with that background of, you know, really understand, wanted to understand things, trying to wanted to solve things, not just 
building a business to make money, right? But really having an impact. And what I got to do two things. First, I, I did a major in entrepreneurship. So again, that was that idea of like building projects and having an impact, so kind of like a short term. And of course, it was touching everything, right? From just, you know, purely opportunistic projects where you can make money to, again, things that were more socially focused uh, with impact, which is why mm-hmm. I definitely was named towards. And then I, get to, I got to go to Peru to study for six months. That was in 2008, uh, 2009. That was my, my first interaction with fair trade. And mm-hmm. to be honest, I was not fully very aware of it before. Again, through microfinance, around the certification and what that would mean, but never really experienced it firsthand. And what happened in Peru is that I got to join a group of students that were literally in Amazon visiting a co-op, visiting a farming group as part of a project uh, for a cosmetic company. And I just joined by curiosity. They invited me. I was not part of it. And this community was called the Shippy Boats. It's an amazing community in Peru that is known for their culture is in the forest. Uh, so they don't really farm anything. It's really cultivating whatever the, co- the forest provides. And so one thing we were going to explore was a fruit murawi, which was, uh, it's, it's, a very, it's almost like a sai, like a berry that grows at the top of uh, very tall trees. And it was pretty fascinating because literally they would go in the forest, we went with them and look for what, trees were ready to be harvested and it would climb with pretty tools but very thin, climb to the top cut the fruit and then come down and then collect it which is really that idea of the farmer the forest provide and then you as long as you do it in a sustainable way you can get as much as you want to be used for you know either trade or your own needs and what i thought was even more fascinating right after is at night, the group that I was following held a meeting with all the villagers to talk about how much products the company, the cosmetic, the French company, the cosmetic company needed and how much product the village could provide. Hmm. And what was fascinating is it was about, it was a real conversation. Nobody telling others what to do or it was literally like room for we we need to talk. We need to. Everybody needs to express where where they're coming from. Because the goal was let's make sure we don't destroy. You don't give us everything right now, but then in two years, then there's no more to mm. harvest, right? So let's do it in a sustainable way, so that for everybody's interest, for this company that needed you know a, a supply that that's going to be you know uh, fairly resilient for years, and of course for the community that needed also a source of revenue. To, to stay, you know, sustainable years after years, and then of course for the environment, it was in everybody's interest to do this in respectful of the forest, respectful of the ecosystem. So again, that was I didn't know what Ungari was before going there. I didn't really know what fair trade was until then. I didn't really know what traditional trade was about. Besides, again, what I studied in economics, which was again most, you know, driven by supply and demand. Um, and this was really eye-opening for me that. We could have direct relationship with producers at the other side of the world. Mm. We could have direct uh, conversation with producers supposedly in the most remote area in the world in the middle of the Amazon. No, yeah, it took nine hours of boat to, to go steal them, but it was totally worth it. Yeah. And it's doable, right? It costs money and time, probably a little bit, but it's totally doable. So that was very eye-opening. And then the, the, everybody was up for that conversation, right? Like, again, there was a clear understanding at the beginning of that conversation that 
this was in everybody's interest. Nobody was exploiting anybody. Nobody was taking advantage of anything. That's really how I, when I came home, I was like, okay, this is, this was something. This is, I don't know what I'm going to do with this, but this is something. Yeah. And then I discovered them. And that, that clicked, right? I was like, oh, okay. I actually can work in this. I can do something <laughs> myself. I can work for a company that supports that. And so I, and I applied for the, it was an internship. You mentioned, it said assistant on my LinkedIn, I guess. But uh, before that, it was an internship. And so I was supposed to go there for six months. And I got in. And then 10 years later, here I am. refused to leave. <laughs> so what, refused to leave. <laughs> what was the internship? What was the role? It's the back office role. Pretty much it was, meaning there was a lot of processing uh, purchase orders and invoices, but also doing some communication. It was pretty much it was kind of like a catch-all because the company was really small. It was four people. So it was our oh, two wow. co-founders, Lauren Mathieu. It was our VP sales, uh, Kate uh, Tierney, who was there, and then our director of operation, Jean Cloutier, who uh, also stayed pretty long uh, for many years in the company after that. So... So therefore, it was kind of like sitting everywhere. I was working with Gene a lot around in operation, right? So again, processing orders, processing, um, making sure we are buying the right things. I mean, again, I was not doing, I was not doing, of course. So it was, it was awesome because it, it allowed me to really touch on any piece of the company that still today, uh, we're still doing today, right? Like with better systems, we build bigger processes. But when you know, in a team meeting, we hear that the operation team is dealing with, you know purchase orders that are delayed or like some payments that are delayed. I'm like, okay, I used to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so I understand what you're talking about. So that was very useful. But most importantly though, it was very timing because the company just closed their series A during my time wow. there. So they had funds to create a marketing department. And when I had a conversation with the founders, which was all right, like, can I, do I want to do this? Do I, the back office was fine, but, you know, let's, uh, what exactly <laughs> do I want to do? Marketing sounds very interesting. Again, the good thing with Alter, Alter Eco is that there's so many stories to tell that it's not, I feel like the marketing I had learned in business school more about creating content that people <laughs> yeah. want to hear, coming up with stories, <laughs> creating strategies based on what consumers want. It was not really... N- no, it was not of that at the time. It was like, okay, we have all this content. This is <laughs> so many stories to tell, and we need someone to start pushing it to consumers. And hopefully, they'll want to listen. To <laughs> and of course, there was a lot of problem with that uh, at the time. We should have probably been more consumer focused than than just pushing stories we had. But it felt really true to at least where I was coming from, because it was really about the people we were working with. And again, like from a development economics point of view, it was about what they were going through and how a company like that for them more than it was not pure marketing about what consumers wanted to do. And at that time, there weren't a lot of those stories being told too. So it made sense to tell those stories. And then of course, other companies followed suit and then we're also telling those stories. And that's when, like you said, you need to start focusing on, okay, well, what's, what's our unique piece and what do the consumers care about? But that makes that makes sense. That explains your transition a bit more. So you moved from into the marketing role. And I know yeah. having worked with you for, for quite a few years in that, that there's also been multiple rounds of changes through not only you know the company itself, obviously, as it grew, but 
but like I think we're on four brand what we're calling it 4.0 now so I'm curious yeah, yeah. as someone in marketing like you know the the rebrand is always kind of a exciting but but scary thing because you don't know how it's going to go and how long it's going to take and how consumers are going to react but you you went in there like multiple times and then just kept um diving back in so I'm curious to know from your perspective kind of leading this world changing company and kind of continuously evolving that brand the more you learned the more you kind of evolved what was that process like what were the biggest challenges what was the most exciting about it yeah so first i think the main reason why everything is because the market really evolved around those topics of sustainability and what people care about because evolving i think we're getting to a peak where consumers really care climate change is every day in the news there's no way for people to just disregard it and not listen right so i think we're getting to that peak where brands need to act and be part of the solution but in the past 10 years even though it's been slowly growing to that peak every year was a bit different right um and what people wanted to hear get, was getting different so i think we're kind of like through the rebranding trying to catch those trends and staying ahead of care as much as possible the other reason why i think there was so many rebranding is also the evolution of a portfolio that's that that was one of a of the big factors behind our rebranding is that we used a lot of different products, different categories from chocolate to quinoa and rice and sugar. And then by more and more focusing on chocolate, as you can understand that also drove, um, you know, different positioning, different communication strategies. So I think they, therefore coming from those two, two different, you know, drivers, the market and then our portfolio, it's been very interesting to, again, to stay malleable, to stay flexible and adjust, right? And because we're we're we still a pretty small brand, uh, even though we bring you know from people to uh, about twenty five today, we're still small in the sense that again we can we can adjust. So what has been challenging though is to when you do a rebranding to address a market trend, let's make sure we stay true to ourselves. Yeah. Right. And I think we've been true to ourselves for the past 10 years and I still and, and still today. So even though it was a challenge, I believe, because again, there's always this force pulling you for what is the the strategy that's going to potentially sell the most, right? Mm-hmm. Disregarding who we are is like what's the one that consumers really want. And I guess like, no, but really, what is but who are we? And the reason I think we stay true to that is because at the end of the day, who we are is what we know best. So it's one thing to understand what consumers want today in chocolate. But if we've never done it, and that's not what we really want to deliver, it, great, right? So it's, if if we stay true to who we are, then that's what we can deliver. And for Alter Eco, it's sustainability, right? Fair mm-hmm. trade is you know DNA, and you know having a great impact on the environment. You know, since two thousand five that we created the company, that our founders created the company, it was about fair trade, right? It was about working directly with farmers. So that's in our DNA. But very soon after that, three years after that, because we were working directly with farmers then organic became important, right? Because we were hearing from farmers that their health was getting affected using pesticides and fertilizers. All right, cool. oh, yeah. let's transition to organic. Everything is organic. And then working with farmers in Peru in deforested areas in 2008, we heard that planting trees could actually help. And there was a business model behind paying farmers to plant trees and selling carbon credits to companies like us to be carbon neutral. Now, carbon becomes to the company. 
right? And then 2013, packaging. Plastic pollution is a problem. If we put out a compostable, solution, compostable packaging solution that actually exists and that actually protects our product, all right, now packaging is part of our sustainability model. So I really believe that that work with farmers as a direct relationship as a, that forces you to lessen is what created all the basis for sustainability efforts, initiatives, and opportunities all those years and made Alterico such a sustainability-oriented company. Again, not because that's what consumers wanted, not because what our founders wanted that this was the way businesses should work. It's because it was just working with those farmers that in every, you know, every step of the way it became obvious that we could do better. Right, that we could, again, we could do better by being organic. We could do better by planting trees. We could do better by putting compostable packaging. So, during that evolution of learning in that sense, I think, therefore, what, when we started listening to consumers, and, and that's what led to, to rebranding, it was about how do we take those consumer strands around you know, sustainability and food and chocolate, and again, still stay true to who we are. So the first rebranding in 2011 was actually about talking because, yeah, consumers, well, actually not even yes, it's like consumers buy chocolate because of the taste. And we were pushing the mission only. We were pushing yeah. farmers, we were pushing records. And so we're like, we're not going to if we don't tell consumers that we have the best taste in chocolate. And that was in 2011, which again, today is different, right? We wouldn't do the same strategy today. Back then, we felt that we, I remember a graph internally that we had where the word mission was in big yeah. in our brain. It was like a brain, right? It's yeah. our brain. The word mission was in big and the word food was And like, okay, let's, let's swap, swap that, right? The word food is going to be big. We're going to be foodies. And then the word mission is going to be in small. Again, a bit of a challenge is mission, why so we're reducing mission? Like, how does that work, right? Like, yeah. how? And they were like, no, 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 it's just, you know, well, the mission stays the same. It's just we're going to communication wise push food, 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 and taste. All right. It worked. I think it connected us to our terroir. It connected our farmer's stories to the taste, right? Like our quinoa, for example, we had great stories around the fact that it comes from the birthplace of quinoa. And that's why it's so fluffy and it's a bigger quinoa than other quinoas on the market. This taste uh, nuttier. It's because it has that story behind it that our farmers have been cultivating it for hundreds of years. So that was, I still very true to our mission, right? We could show those stories because we know our fight. And then fast forward to 2017, our second rebranding, that one was really about focusing on chocolate, right? Because yeah. we discontinued our rice, our sugar, so going away from commodities. And that one, therefore, was a bit more challenging because it's more about, it's value-added products, right? How do you explain to consumers, again, your chocolate is different than the one next door. And it's actually easier to do on chocolate than it is on rice and sugar, right? Because again, it's a product that, because it's a value-added product, there's more that comes into process into the different ingredients that we source. There's more stories that makes that final product that could allow us to differentiate it from others. So again, we went from a brand that was more about, we call it sustainable foods from around the world. That was the, the 2.0 to a brand that was more about indulgence. And mm -hmm. that, was, that one to be honest was the most challenging, I think, because focusing on indulgence, it's hard then what's the place for the mission, right? Where does, yeah. where does the mission fall when you talk about how delicious your chocolate is? And that's when now the, the 4.0 that you've worked on very hard and, and, and greatly 
I think it's relation. It's like that's I, again. I, I do believe it's also because it's the right time. I don't think maybe that would maybe that wouldn't have worked four years ago. Who knows? Yeah. But right now, it's like no. Like it's it's about let's put our values at the forefront of our pack. And I'm so excited about it, really, because I think this is probably the best uh, decision we we I believe we could have made is is really to put our mission at the forefront with this image of trees and all the great work we do with regenerative culture. Yeah, actually, that that ties into your role transition as well because then obviously from marketing you moved into sustainability role kind of working on mission helping launch the foundation so how did that role change come about i guess what inspired that change and what's been new or challenging about this different role yeah it's interesting because i think going back that time when i was the intern and we were starting a marketing department i think it's always been the, my passion comes from that work with farmers. My passion comes from that experience in Peru. My passion comes from visiting our farmers year after years in Peru and Thailand and really connecting and understanding what else can we do to have a better impact on them, but also on the planet. And while the marketing role also needed that in order to tell the stories, I needed to get the story, right? I needed to go on site and understand or impact to tell the story of that impact. I think what, as a company growing fast and uh, wants to grow further, the marketing needs go beyond today just telling our sustainability story. And even though I'm extremely uh, excited that our sustainability is the focus of a marketing strategy, there are, you know, start strategies around marketing that that has to do with sanity, right? It's like how, again, what are the best channels to, to get the best ROI on our content and where is our messaging going to be the most efficient? And even though I did enjoy doing that for several years at Alterico because I did, you know, lead marketing for eight years and there was a lot of learning around, you know, the digital channels and again, the, our entry into e-commerce and how to lead uh, people to our website and to converting to sales. Like my passion does lie more into the sustainability camp. And therefore, it did make sense to, we brought someone with experience in marketing to lead those efforts and then myself to focus on our sustainability initiatives. Because as I mentioned that we're growing and therefore we need strong marketing strategies, we're growing in a highly competitive sector and therefore we need really strong sustainability strategies we need to stay at the forefront of the you know ahead of the curve and stay the pioneers and therefore it made sense also to have someone myself dedicated to that nice and so that includes all of our efforts around packaging uh, around compostable packaging again commitment 100 percent of our packaging uh, is either recyclable or compostable that commitment was for January 1st, 2020, December 31st, 2020. So that's coming up. We're there, so we're very excited. But we'll have to stay there, right, as we launch yeah. products. So there's going be a lot of uh, efforts to do there. And then, which is what we put at the forefront of the pack, is our efforts around sources cocoa in a, a regenerative way, so regenerative culture. And so what I'm really excited about taking a lot of my time is uh, we launched a foundation. We launched the Altrico Foundation. We just launched it uh, three weeks ago. And finally, we really going to put money on the table to invest in projects that 
will transition cocoa farmers from what we are farming to the cheese monoculture to a way that's regenerative, that's sustainable, that's going to be on the long term what the planet needs, which is we call it regenerative culture as an umbrella. And then the specific model specifically that we use is dynamic agroforestry, which is pretty much planting different crops around the, the cocoa tree to regenerate the soil and help better uh, yield and stay healthy. So really exciting. I couldn't be happier with the evolution of my role because again, that as, as I said, that's my passion. And I think we can have a great impact as a foundation and as a company in this topic in regenerative culture. I think that's the future. So we're very excited to, to do that. Yeah. And obviously um, in this, in our industry, regenerative is kind of the future. That's where a lot of people are looking to go towards. So of course it makes sense that Alter Eco is on the forefront. They're pushing into that space and being an innovator. One random question that just popped into my head though, is like, how did, like, how did organic get to a point where it wasn't regenerative in the first place? Like how did like a lot of what you're doing with the foundation is going in to these farming co-ops and, and giving them guidance and funding and whatever to like replant the forest in there, which provides shade and more nutrients in the soil and alternative sources of income and, and different things like that. But since you're pretty close with the farmers and have been working in this field for a while, what's your hypothesis for how we went away from that kind of more natural way of farming to this more, even if it is organic, a little bit more of a monoculture where the cacao wasn't grown under shade trees and stuff. It just seems to make logical sense, financial sense and everything else. So I don't know. I'm just curious to know if if you know how we got away from that. Yeah. Well, I come from where in the center of the country where monoculture is the norm. Like I, we, it's pretty rural area. We are surrounded by mountain valley that's pretty fertile and fields of corn, fields of beans, fields of um, beets. That, that's what I would see, you know, going to school every day. And it was working, right? Like it, there was productivity, there was you know, the yields that the farmers needed were there. I think at the time, like often, unfortunately, I feel like in economics and politics, we think short term, right? We should, we think 20 years, 50 years maybe, but we don't think 200, 500 years. And therefore, yeah, for 50 years, this is going to work, right? Like the soil is fertile, let's grow one culture let's put the right fertilizer for it, the right pesticide for it, the right, you know, even maybe temperature and, and you know, environment if it's under greenhouse and, and just as much as, as produce as much as possible, right? Year after year after year. I could see how that made sense at the time. Like from a scientific point of view, it's like, okay, sure. The problem I think what everybody missed is what it was going to do to the soil after 20, 30, 50 years, yeah. right? And it's hard because we couldn't see it, right? I don't, because even after 20 years, I mean, the wheat is still great was still great because again now we're like more like 50 years after and then we stopped seeing that the crops are worse in crop quality and and worse worse in yield year after year at the time it was really hard to project right you know i mean i think it's it's too bad that there was no you know agronomist or scientist scientist or you know engineers that were not able to project that i wish we had done that and granted i'm sure there are actually some people were able to project it it's just they were not listened to right? <laughs> exactly 
but the people who were making the decision were not able to project it. Because I do believe, I don't first, I don't know, it depends maybe country by country. And I know the US, story of the US post-World War II, they needed to feed, you know, the, the country and that kind of like industrial all farming was potentially driven by the wrong motives around money and around, you know, short-term yields and short-term returns. But they are also, they were also good, you know, real goal population of wanting productivity, of even having farmers making enough money, right, at the end of the month to feed their family. I think there were, this model was driven also by, you know, good, good faith and good goals. Unfortunately, on the long term, that's not working, right? Farmers are not now able to feed their families anymore because, again, their yields are uh, decreasing year after year, and also their crops are not at all resilient to bad weather. For the second, there's a there's you know a storm or not enough rain or too much rain, it's a catastrophe, right? It's like they they lost their entire annual income. And what agroforestry does is prevents that, right? It creates resilience for farmers, resilience in front of climate change, in front of today's situation. But even 50 years ago, when the soil was fine, it was a better, I guess, situation from farming point of view. It was still creating, again, resilience for bad years. There's always bad years in farming, right? And that's why I think agroforestry is so revolutionary and so um, important today is, first, from a farmer point of view, right? It assures, again, if one crop is not doing great, there's other crops that it can harvest and sell and have some revenue. If all the crops that he can make money out of are bad this year. There's still some crops he can use and eat, right? So in the worst case scenario, there's still food on the table, which in Ecuador, Peru, where in Dominican Republic, when we were from, that's very important. Uh, and even in Europe and the US, to be honest, right? It's like this, let's go to that fundamental place where a farmer should be able to grow food to eat himself. And with monoculture, that's not the case. If you only grow cocoa, you cannot eat cocoa. Even if you only grow wheat, you most likely don't eat your own wheat, right? Like it's just, yeah. it's just can't even afford so, Exactly, and there's that too. Exactly, that was the point with quinoa. We saw that where quinoa's price was so high that even though quinoa farmers were traditionally mostly eating quinoa, um, it's such a you know strong grain that was providing a lot of nutrients and didn't need a lot of diverse, very diversified diet, they couldn't afford to put on the. That is a a system that monoculture created, that productivity-driven system created, that we're trying to go against to have something called more human skin, right? That's closer to what farming used to be. Because I'll, I'll pause there for a second and say it, because this is not a new model, right? This is, not, this is nothing, I said it were revolutionary. It is revolutionary because the current system is, it's gonna take a while to change it. So we need a revolution to change it. But it's indigenous, you know, communities used agroforestry and, you know, original agriculture for centuries. And as we all know, nobody really listened to uh, neither Native Americans or indigenous. all that knowledge was completely buried in an atrocious way. So let's try to unbury that and learn. And that's what's also, I think, for me is that we're not reinventing the wheel, right? We're just promoting a way that, has proven uh, efficacy and successes in the past. We don't even have to prove that it works. We just have to communicate and it's advocacy work more than, oh, look, we came up with the best solution ever. No, it's like, 
which is, if anything, the foundation is giving a platform to communities that have shown with their own ways that, that it was working for them. And then we hoping for new communities to adopt that new way. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I like the term that you were just using there, the revolutionary, because in my mind, as you were saying that, I was thinking like re-evolution and the idea of just going back to the way things were working before we messed it all up. <laughs> and that's that's the way I've kind of seen organic for a long time. I know when um, you know I was early organic adopter and I'd have lots of coworkers or friends being like, ooh, what's that weird organic stuff you're eating? It's probably full of bugs and tastes like dirt or something like that. And they thought it was this new thing. But my favorite thing to way to explain it was always, no, this is just the way food had been for the since the beginning of time up until just recently in like the 40s or 50s when we started changing things and deciding we had a better idea than nature had. And now we're just getting back to it. So we just had like really like a 30 to 60 year blip where we went off the path and now we're trying to rejoin the path. So regenerative, I think, is like taking that the next step further, right? It's not just, you know, removing all the nasty stuff we started putting in there, but it's also kind of replenishing the soil we depleted and replenishing the economies, replenishing the nature that we took out. Yeah, you're right. Like organic was a necessary first step, right? By removing the bad stuff, removing the pesticides and fertilizers. And then now it's, but let's go one step further. Again, going back to what nature, you know, intended but it's still one step further away from the current, you know, conventional farming system in monoculture. It's not about removing what's bad. It's about creating a system that, you know, gives back to the soil, gives good nutrients to the soil. I have a story on that around a Thai farmer that I visited back in 2015 that was telling us before going organic rice, he was growing conventional rice. And pharmaceutical company, not pharmaceutical, sorry, um, like fertilizer com- company, a chemical company came to him one day and all the villagers and say, all right, we can give you fertilizer. It's very potent. It's, you know, your yield's going to be amazing. It's going to be great. And then we have the pesticides that go with it. It's going to be amazing, right? It costs that much money that you're going to sell that much price that it's going to totally offset the cost. And so they all went in, right? Because again, that was just the way, right? Um, nobody was questioning it. And then that's the farmer told us that after a few years, really starting seeing his house, you know, degrade because he was spraying so much chemical every year. And then besides his house degrading, he also was seeing his bank account being in a very problematic situation. He was completely in debt because he would need to buy fertilizers and pesticides, those inputs, before the harvest, before getting any money for this harvest, like a month before. And he needed to take debt. Often with those companies who pretty much would just like lock farmers down and just don't move a few hours. We own you because you are so, so much money. So all of your RS pretty much goes to us. Like all of your, you know, the first ones to be paid is mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical, is the chemical company, not the farmer, right? And so of course, when years, the, you know, some years, sure, the yields were great and the harvest was great, but years where it was not that great, again, they would give money to that company to pay their debt and nothing would be less for oh that. Oh my God. And that farmer had the courage to say no more. I'm going to, I'm going to stop all of that. Mostly again, because of his health, 
So the debt was going on since day one, but it took the health piece to, for him to say no more. And then he had also the leadership to convince his prison, created a co-op called Serene Co-op, who we've sourced, who we've, uh, sourced uh, rice from for many years and transitioned to organic, right? And the co-op was here to you know, help the transition through certification. And then uh, they also became fair trade and then, and knowledge, right? Uh, and also finance, financial head, uh, hey, sorry, away from, like to pay back those debts, right? And get away from that dependency from a chemical company. And for me, that story, it's, it's kind of trying to answer your, that question, how organic is one's first step, right? Before regenerative, but again, very necessary because if they needed to go through that to then now think about regenerative. But when you're in debt and when you're sick and then when you're spraying, there's no way you can think of like, oh, why don't I plant other crops in my field and see if the soil will get better? It's not about the health of your soil, it's about your own health at that point, right? So mm-hmm. you need to get away from that, be organic. And then I agree, I mean, organic monoculture is definitely not the answer anymore because the soil is being degraded. And then as a farmer, you start thinking of your soil and then start implementing regenerative culture. Yeah. And one thing that I always am kind of burdened by too in our industry is that in order to do things the right way, or at least prove that you're doing things the right way, we as more mission-driven businesses are, are burdened with all these extra costs, like certification costs, for example. Like you have to pay all yeah. this money to be organic certified. You have to pay all this money to like, you know, have your B Corp status and do all this other kind of stuff to prove that you're doing things the right way, where in reality, it should be flipped the other way around. You should have to pay to do things the wrong way. And therefore we're incentivizing doing it the right way. Right. But with that said, I'm curious to know if Alter Eco is planning to add yet another badge to your collection and, and pursue regenerative or get regenerative organic certification down the future or down the, in the, and if so, how do you typically share those costs with the farmers? That's a good question. To answer the second question around shared costs, at least with fair trade, often that's why co-ops exist, is the co-op is the mechanism to share the costs, right? So that it's not a burden on the farmer. Mm-hmm. At least that's how we've seen it. We, I know a lot of other brands actually get involved um, in making the co-op certified and therefore can participate in the cost. We've worked with co-ops that were already established and already had that certification. And again, to my knowledge, they had done it through the co-op mechanism to combine, you know, resources and, you know, with 3,000 farmers, they can pay for certification. Today, though, it's still an issue around you probably know that fair trade certifiers, there's multiple of them and still tend to um, be a little bit in a you know conflictual situation and therefore co-ops sometimes have to choose. And I know that if they wanted to work with the three of them, it's an extra cost, right? And it's a burden on them. So that's definitely still a problem, especially with fair trade, which is about acquiring farmers and give more money back to them. Why do they need to bear that cost, right? So, exactly, yeah. you know, your suggestion for like brand getting involved uh, and especially again, we move for the same thing. Why should they pay three times, right? So, there's probably something there. On the regenerative one, it's 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 something we're asking ourselves: is what is the power of the seal? From a consumer point of view, we are questioning it. I, I remember this survey a few years ago that showed that there was higher trust 
of a consumer to their local farmer on the farmer's market, yeah. then to the USDA seal or the fair trade seal, which makes a lot of sense. So knowing that, knowing that we work directly with farmers, you know, can we be the farmer's market brand of chocolate and quinoa, even though you cannot buy that on, your shop, on a farmer's market, we can bring that to you with that direct relationship. So from a consumer point of view, again, we're questioning it from a third party auditing point of view, uh, verification point of view, so that we do actually what we say. I still think personally it's important, right? I think, uh, you know, greenwashing is still a problem. So if we let brands and whatever they want without any verification, that that doesn't help anybody. So I think for me, certification stay important for that, right? So that someone verifies that we are actually organic, that we are actually fair trade, that we are actually regenerative. So when you take those two things in consideration, the, you know maybe consumer doesn't need them, but uh, we need them from an ethical point of view. Then we kind of make it's a case by case decision. Uh, so for ROC. Uh, I think you know, we'll see where the certification itself is going, um, what the standards are about. Right now with the foundation, we're kind of putting in place you know, a transparency model right? that really communicates a lot about what we're doing, what are the projects about, what are the results of those projects. That's one way of third-party certification. It's not a third-party, but it's, it's really being transparent around that's the regenerative model and everybody can kind of judge if, if, you know, if, if the results are good or not, rather than having someone certify it. Also, to be honest, because it's a new, it's a new model, it's, you know, ROC is a new certification, there's only one. So we'll see a few years down, you know, down the line if, if, if it makes sense to get certified. To be honest, though, as a consumer, personally, I see it even when I, I, I do look for the seals because if, you know, when I buy vegetables, if I don't see the organic seal, I don't really trust it, right? Even if it's like maybe at the local farmer's market, but at the supermarket, even if it says locally grown, nothing tells me that there's no pesticide on this thing. So especially when I buy them to feed my babies, right? So I still really believe there's, there's strong value to, to certifications, uh, personally, at least. Yeah. And even though, like like you pointed out, that a lot of people trust their local farmer in the farmer's market and to, if they say they're not putting any pesticides or whatever on it, or if they're saying we grow organically, we're just not paying the certification. There is something to me when I'm walking through a farmer's market and I see the organic logo up that feels like they're not just marketing. They they care, you know, because they, they did go that extra mile to get the certification. At the same time, I'm like, conflicted because I know it is a pain and it is expensive and how necessary is it when you're a local farmer selling to to just individuals who trust you and know you but at the same time it does show yeah. like a bit of that commitment and I know Alter Eco's um you know always been known for going above and beyond like with yeah. the compostable packaging innovation that you've done that nobody was demanding that you move into compostable pouches you know but you took it on yourself to invest in it and try to create the material create the supply chain you know front the costs for all the testing and everything else to make it more possible for both you and other brands so so i you know i think there are consumers out there that see that and respect that as well as you know trusting their local farmer but they they like especially more and more these days the younger generations are are wanting to shop with the brands that are standing up for something they believe in 
instead of just like jumping on the bandwagon <laughs> after it becomes popular. With that said, I'm curious to know, I know that Alter Ego is a B Corp and has been a B Corp for a long time, but also that Alter Ego like consistently wins like a, a best of the world kind of award through B Corp. I'm curious to know what how B Corp affects your company culture and how you keep pushing forward, innovating in kind of a holistic way through your your commitment to like B Corp principles. Yeah. For me, I'd say that the day we became B Corp certified was such a, it, it was really just confirming everything we had been doing. As I mentioned, in 2005, we started fair trade. In 2008, we went organic. Then we started being carbon neutral. Then in 2013, packaging. So when we became B Corp certified, which I believe was around 2010 or 11, it was confirming that idea that as a business, you can have a positive impact all along your supply chain, not just in one aspect. And you're not just a fair trade chocolate or an organic chocolate or, again, a carbon neutral business. You can really take all of that into account when you make decisions. So we approach B Corp in that sense. It is, oh, finally, there's a certification that englobes everything we do, that idea of a full sustainability contract and including your employees and all of that. And since then... Well, first, we really stay true to that. So we stay true to our values of being full cycle sustainability. So really, again, every time we launch something new, like, you know, looking at packaging, okay, let's make it as sustainable as we can if the solution exists, right? Or when we hire, let's make sure we're as, as fair as we can. And B Corp, every three years, when we get the, the questionnaire to be certified again, same, like, plays that role, a check, right? It's like, oh, wait, we... So we gained points on that and that, that makes sense because since then we, we didn't have compostable packaging before. Now we do. So great. We gained points, right? Normal. But maybe other things were like, oh, we lost points this one. Why? Oh yeah. They said we should have this information public around our practices, X and Y, right? It's like, okay, we don't have it on our website. Great. That's true. More, more transparency. Great. We don't, it's not that we didn't have it for, for any reason. It's just, you know, like they're pushing us in that sense, right? To have those best practices of sustainability that I'm sure knowing B Corp, they also learn from their community, right? Some businesses are doing X and Y, and then they can integrate that into the questionnaire for the next time as a best practice, right? So um, that's really how I see it. We've learned a lot from the community how to push the envelope further. But even though we were already pushing the envelope, is again, how to do it. Uh, how to always do it in a better way. And, and that concretely also happens in B Corp as a lot of um, you know, networking events or conferences or you know, collaborative groups that are often part of. And for me, at least, it's, it's one of the most uh, fulfilling ones that I attend because of the mining group, right, as, as a start. And then it's, it's always conversations on really important topic, right? Of course, recently it's been a lot of climate change and how businesses can help, you know, reverse climate change. But overall, I feel like it's always so on point with what our values and alter are, but also what I believe what, you know, businesses should stop or worry about in terms of their impact on people and planet. So it's been such a great group to, you know, change ideas with, uh, learn from. And as this group expands, they have more and more, you know, big companies joining. And us as a small company, again, there's so much to learn from, from them. And I 
believe also maybe something that we can teach on bigger groups <laughs> based on our experience. So it's been a, it's been a great, uh, a great community to be part of. Yeah, that's awesome. And um, I imagine that with your new role, since you're in charge of sustainability, does that mean the kind of B Corp certification fits within your role now? And if so, what's what's on the horizon for your role and your your next big challenge that you're trying to accomplish um, to maybe improve your responsibility? So yeah, so I work on our the B Corp certification. Our our quality manager is also part of our. She's in charge of all of our certification per se, so she's a big part of that process. But definitely anything that we can do to, again, keep her B Corp certification, keep her score high, improve her score, falls under me in terms of what else can we do. And maybe less about B Corp. As I was saying, B Corp was more as a, we learn a lot from the relationships within B Corp, but then the actual certification is more of a, of a verification thing, right? Internally, like a little a little check, right? Then that's something that we use to lead our decisions. Leading our decision is really how can we stay a pioneer, right? How can we stay a leader in sustainability? Because that's such who we are. That's 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 who we've always been. And therefore, as we grow, as you know, more and more companies out there are also into sustainability. Let's just make sure that we play that role of staying at the forefront. And again, not not just to be ahead. It's really because we just feel like it's a responsibility, right? Because if not, the opposite is what? Say, okay, great. We have compostable packaging now. We have organic treasure cocoa. We, we're good. You know, we can just stay that way. <laughs> we're more into like, okay, no, what else can we do? And that's why we decided to focus so much on regenerative agriculture because that's what I focus the most on is because it's still something new to us with the project that's going on in our supply chain. I started in 2015. So we still have, you know, there's some years behind us around uh, in terms of like learnings, but it's still a small volume of our farmers. And therefore now what the foundation is about is to, again, put money on the table to transition as many farmers, the one we work with, but also beyond mostly cocoa farmers, but it could be also, you know, other ingredients that we source, other projects out there with other farming communities that we want to support to really how can we transition as many farmers as possible from, again, the current monoculture system to regenerative agriculture, especially uh, dynamic agroforestry. And there's a ton of work, as you can imagine. And what I like about being focused on that is that I think it's really going to create impact. Because we could also say, oh, at Alterico, we do regenerative, we do compostable packaging, we do, you know, we're carbon neutral. We can also start looking at, you know, um, new ways to, again, be a better business on a lot of different aspects, logistics, on anything like, like trucks, for example, that we have around going around the country through a distributor to distribute our product. Like there's so many aspects as a business that we can t- touch from a sustainable point of view. And even all important to us, you know, focus is important in order to have a good impact. So really, regenerating culture and agroforestry is our priority. Compostable packaging is a very strong commitment, is the close second in terms of, again, we'll, we'll work really hard to also stay at the forefront of new technology and making sure that we use, you know, what has the best impact in terms of packaging. The third focus that, again, I don't mean to dismiss it, this as a priority is that we are a climate neutral business, 
right? And part of being a climate neutral business is when you measure your emission, you also look at reduction strategies, right? Why, okay, what's the biggest contributor and how do we do it? Good news here is that that objective number three matches objective number one. Our biggest contributor is ingredient sourcing. That's 33% of our emission. And the most that is cocoa. And so cocoa, by sourcing it, the reason why cocoa is such a big, a big emitter is also because of the way it's grown, right? It's grown on land that used to be forest that was cut down to grow cocoa. That has a huge carbon impact. It's used, you know, even though it's organic, it's going in a way that, you know, needs to be water for irrigation that creates emission, needs to, you know, to bring, uh, even if it's organic compost and fertilizer, it needs to be brought, it needs to be put somewhere, it needs to be brought into the parcel that creates emissions, right? If all of our cocoa tomorrow was regenerative culture, well, non- nonetheless, you reduce those 30% emissions to zero, but you actually capture carbon, right? So as a company, we start offsetting our traps, you know, going on the country with the carbon we capture in Peru and Ecuador, and hopefully to a point one day that we are really, really climate neutral. Because today we're climate neutral because we have a remaining 3,000 metric tons a year that we compensate by planting trees or conserving forests, right? But ideally one day, it's all integrated into the same supply chain, right? It's like, because we grow cocoa a certain way, we're climate neutral because we capture carbon that then we emit through, through trucks, which by the way, we don't own the trucks because if we own it, they were electric, but we work with distributors. And even though they also try to make efforts to be better, they're not there yet. So that's something. And but, but we offset those emissions, even though we're on those trucks, they're part of our program. They're part of the emissions we capture. Because ultimately, if there's no trucks, our products don't do consumers and then we don't exist. So, but therefore you can see how, again, as a company, sustainability has a lot of legs, right? Uh, but that regenerative culture piece is the one that has the, I think, the biggest opportunity for a company to to have the biggest impact for our farmers. Because again, as I said earlier, regenerative culture allows farmers to grow food that they can put on their table. If one day the harvest is bad for cocoa, if one day the price of cocoa is low, or at least lower than expected, even though we're fair paid, still fluctuation above that fair price. So the great benefits for farmers. And then for the planet, again, like regenerative culture has potential to reverse climate change because it can capture so much carbon above ground. We're planting twice the amount of trees in a parcel compared to common culture, but also below ground. A healthy soil captures so much more carbon than a depleted soil. Depleted soil in monoculture releases carbon year after year. Yeah. If you get back life into that soil, carbon gets drawn down. And as Project Drawdown says very well, the great book, we can reverse climate change by drawing down carbon. By it's not it, the, the the fate that the atmosphere is, you know, is, is a greenhouse now and that the the, the temperatures are going to rise is not sealed. We can reverse that. We can change that. It's going to take a lot of efforts, but there's a way. We can draw down that carbon. And regenerative culture is one way to do that. And we're really excited to be part of that. Yeah, and not only that, but with all of those extra inputs, you, you know, it's also conserving water and a bunch of other benefits too. Like it's too many benefits to even mention in your marketing. So, <laughs> but it, it's I think one thing that resonated with me. I know. Yeah, you know, 
as you try to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's the, that's the burden yeah. that, you know, you have slash we have with a lot of our clients is there's too much story to tell. You don't have to manufacture anything. It's more about like whittling it down to the most important things. But one thing that resonated with me um, with what you just said is the idea of focus and kind of knowing your most important things that you need to work on and where you're innovating, et cetera. Um, but one thought that comes to mind is that as a company that's always evolving, you know, it was fair trade and then it was, you know, organic and then it was um, regenerative and, you know, who knows what's next. But so, A, I'm curious to know if after you solve this uh, regenerative thing and maybe convert all your cocoa farmers to agroforestry, is there an idea in your mind of what's next? And then follow up, you know, complimentary question to that is how do you as a company slash how do you personally keep evolving? Like how do you keep pushing yourself forward like that? So to your point, the first step was to transition all of our farmers. And that's not a small commitment. We would love to be able to make that commitment soon. I think we but you know we're still looking for enough regenerative cocoa today to well, there's two things. You can you, you can transition farmers, it takes four years, or you can work with farmers that have already transitioned, right? In order for 100% of the cocoa we source to be regenerative uh, and from agroforestry. So uh, we're looking at both, right? The foundation is going to really work on transitioning farmers. And then are there new sources of cocoa that we can start working with that are already established as regenerative for us to source from? That's what we're looking at right now. That's a lot also of my role in order to, once we've established those, you know, new sourcing uh, supplies um, or like, uh, yeah, supply chains, can we therefore within five years, 10 years, have 100% of our cocoa be regenerative? Because again, any complex model, any great solution that can reverse climate change is not a six month solution, right? It's, yeah. it takes time, but that's, that. That's also, I think, what makes Antarctica so special. The 10 years horizon doesn't scare us, right? We're not here to have short-term returns. We know that that's not how it works, right? And so that, that's what we're working on. So again, I just wanted to, to answer your question around what's next. There's so many sub steps into regenerative that yeah. that's what's next, right? <laughs> what's next is we have 10 years <laughs> and we have 10 years to, again, start looking at or like start sourcing cocoa from, from non-monoculture uh, groups that already exist in, in the world. And, and in that sense, I think what's very exciting is, again, in addition to, to looking at our cocoa farmers today and say, okay, let's transition to agroforestry, is because agroforestry is about different crops. Um, for example, today we source vanilla from farmers in Madagascar, and we've been sourcing from them for years that we use in our, our chocolate. Vanilla grows very well with cocoa in agroforestry. So there's an idea, and actually a project started, of could the vanilla farmers actually grow cocoa, right? And if so, it's going to take four years, because once you plant a cocoa tree, a cocoa tree takes four years before you can harvest cocoa. But we strongly believe that in four years that cocoa could be great. And then with that, it will be a real agroforestry model. So there will be bananas, there will be mangoes, there will be beans, there will be timber trees. But it would be the idea is that we're worried about banana from you, we could buy cocoa from you. That's all agroforestry. The soil is doing great. That's a great 
start, right? And in the pharmacies, pharma community we work with, that relationship is that much stronger, right? Because we not only buy one crop from them, but two. So I think for me that that's what's next, is that integration, that holistic approach of our supply chain, of there's so much more we could do with each we work with. Right. If we start looking at them in sale in silos of like, okay, we get cocoa from you, we coconut from someone else, we get vanilla from someone else, is having those like maybe fewer but really meaningful, really impactful relationships and supply chain, where yeah, there's a real a real empowerment with as we grow and as we our volumes grow and then, you know there's more purchases that we do from farmers to really like focus, same, you know, as I was saying about focus earlier from a strategic point of view, you can do the same focus on the supply chain point of view. If you focus a lot of your efforts in, in a few groups, that group will get that much more, um, you know, empowered and value added and, and you know, like, and, and literally just dollars, right, from us, but ultimately therefore more, more impact. From a risk diversification point of view, that's not great. <laughs> you're supposed to diversify your supply and you're supposed to, not put all your eggs in the same basket from an impact and sustainable point of view. I personally love the idea um, to really, to really within community. Okay. Second answer, second part of the answer of your question is if we're looking at it again, one community, one friend community, what else can they provide for us? The same way is true from a pure ingredient point of view, meaning we're looking at byproducts, right? Can we use yeah. whatever is wasted? when we use, use beef, can we use the pulp? What can we do with the pulp? Can we make sugar with the pulp? Can we use the pot? Can we make packaging from the pot, compostable packaging from the pot? That's also a great story because then from a carbon point of view, we're not moving things around, you know, eucalyptus to South Africa to make compostable packaging and then sugar from Paraguay and then cocoa from Ecuador. Everything can come from Ecuador from my one farm, that's a great story. And I think there's a way to do that. We're not there yet, but you're asking me what's next. I think in the coming five years, I think we can get there. They could be packages of cocoa pulp from a cocoa pod. They are right out there right now, not especially in the format we need, but maybe in the format we need in five years. There could be, again, poly sugar from cocoa pulp. There's some projects that are started. And then there's Again, like, like like anything we can use from those five products that we can therefore communicate about and have a better impact on, on that farmer because that farmer will end up selling things that now uh, he farms away. Yeah, that's a cool idea. Like uh, what sparked in my mind at that with that thought was like a truly single origin chocolate bar where it's not just the cocoa that's single origin, but it's also you got your sugar and your vanilla and like whatever else from that same farm. <laughs> that would be... That would be a pretty cool story. Nice. Okay. Well, Holy, I agree. <laughs> this was a fun chat. Thanks for sharing more about Alter Eco and your career journey with us. As always, it's it's fun to catch up with you. Appreciate you taking a little time out of your <laughs> pandemic schedule to to share with us. Of course. Thank you, Gage. That was very yeah, very enjoyed our conversation. That was fun. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Antoine, his company, or the foundation's mission, go to altericofoods.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, hit that like button and share it with your colleagues. 
And of course, send us feedback and ideas for who we should talk to next at evolve at modernspecies.com. And learn about our new online community at evolvecpg.com. See you next week.